Tonight's talk will be a continuation of last week's talk, but you didn't have to be here, so don't worry if you weren't. I reflected a bit on one of the Buddhist scriptures, the Majjhima Nikaya has a, has a verse, and I'd like to read it again, and this will be the focus for the evening. The purpose of holy life does not consist in acquiring merit, honor, or fame, nor in gaining morality, concentration, or the eye of knowledge. It's that unshakable deliverance, the sure heart's release, that indeed is the object of the holy life. That is its essence. That is its goal. That unshakable deliverance, the sure heart's release. That indeed is the object of the holy life, that is its essence, that is its goal. So we'll be again exploring, I I think I just love the language, the sure heart's release. Um, Really exploring the freedom that's possible when we're no longer caught in any of the binds that uh, have us believing we're small or separate or deficient. So the release is from any story that, that prevents us from realizing our belonging to each other and to life. And tonight what I'll be emphasizing in, in this kind of a deepening of reflection is one of the key binds for all of us, which is aversive judgment. How our, our judgments of ourselves and others create separation. And I'll, right from the start, want to distinguish that judgment from from wise discrimination. So wise discrimination is when we recognize accurately, oh, when this happens it causes this. When I do this something that causes hurt to somebody else or to me or when you do that it hurts, you know, so we're recognizing in an accurate way. It becomes aversive judgment if we then go, you're bad, you're wrong, or else I'm bad, I'm wrong. In other words, if we add a hatred or anger, a kind of a pushing away of another and a closing of the heart. Dorothy Hunt, the poet, has a few lines that I try to weave in as often as I can uh, that I love. Uh, In one of her poems she says, Peace is this moment without judgment, that is all. Peace is this moment without judgment, that is all. This moment in the heart space where everything that is, is welcome. So just to sense for a moment, if you can, what it would be like, this heart space where everything that is, is welcome. That there is room, that there's not resistance, that there's a wakeful openness. I often like to start um, and anchor any of these reflections in science or in evolution so it's not so personal um, that we get that that in in one way it's really quite true we are all, we have the hard wiring to care it's part of our psychobiology, our chemistry to feel caring towards others and to receive care and to be empathetic and compassionate. 
and we have enormous conditioning towards aggression. Uh, we've, you know, more more than more time than not, as our human history, we were prey, and then we weren't. When we weren't totally prey, we've we've been for most of the time uh, fighting over somewhat limited resources. So whether wherever we were on the food chain, we were kind of at war at some in some way. It was incredibly important to be faster and stronger and smarter and better. And um, some of you might have read in the New York Times Science in the Science Times this week, they did research on thousands of eighth graders, and uh, were looking at bullying and found that more bullying didn't take place mostly against marginalized people. More, where the bullying was taking place and the aggression was against those that were fairly popular and they were jockeying for position and for popularity and um, using aggression, judgment, verbal, emotional aggression uh, against those that they perceived as their rivals. It's very deep in in our biology that when we feel threatened, we, we have to find the source and eliminate it, the source of the threat. Okay? And so then the ego dresses that up with, with concepts of wrongness. We make others wrong or bad. That's, that's the ego's way of eliminating. Now, often the source is me. We know that, that when stuff goes wrong, we're very quick to go, I'm screwing up, I'm messing up my own life, I'm messing up other people's lives. We're, we're very quick to that. And um, we use our judgment of ourselves to try to take control. In some way, if I judge me and punish me, then that preempts and you won't do it to me. And if I judge me, maybe I can whip myself into shape and be better. So we preempt for all the imperfections, sleeping late, eating an extra serving, getting lost, misunderstanding directions, forgetting things. So, cartoon that someone sent me yesterday has this, the caption's uh, senior moment, okay, and it's this pair of elderly dinosaurs, and they're on these rocks, and they're surrounded by this rising swirl of water, and you can see Noah's Ark at a distance pulling away, you know, and all the animals are on it, but these two are left abandoned, stranded, and there's these two of them. And one of them saying to the other, oh, so this was the day, <laughs> you know? <laughs> this was the day. They missed it. So what I'll emphasize tonight is blaming outward, not blaming me for forgetting, you know, for doing it wrong as much as blaming you that you are supposed to remember and keep track of the day, or it's your fault that our life is is crumbling. And some of you might remember, if you've been here, one story of this very devoted wife. She had spent her lifetime taking care of her husband. Now he'd been slipping in and out of a coma for several months, and she stayed by his bedside every day. You know, when he came to a sense of emotion for her to come near him, she sat by him. He said, "You know what? You know, you've been with me through all the bad times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. When my business failed, you were there. When I got shot, you were by my side. When we lost the house, you gave me support. When my health started failing, you were by my side. You know what? What, dear?" she said gently. "I think you bring me bad luck." A little late to toss out blame, but you know. 
So it's our most, one of our most fundamental ways to kind of take control and make sense of the world is have the heart tighten and blame. As soon as, at least we're doing something rather than feeling helpless. So there are levels of it. But what I want to ask you to do, if you will, is a reflection that will start now and then I'm going to have you revisit at the end of, of this talk. And that is, um, if you will, just to let your attention go inward. You might close your eyes. As I was beginning to say, there are different levels of blame. But most of us have, have somewhere that we have a story of blame of another person being wrong, and not just wise discrimination, but aversion with it, a sense of putting down, of that they're less than, that they're bad. And so I invite you to sense somewhere in your life where you might be holding a story of blame. And I wouldn't choose somewhere that it's like blame for something that's very traumatic to you because I'm going to ask you to revisit it and it's not that useful to work on trauma in this kind of a setting but somewhere where you just you're carrying a story of resentment or blame you'd like a little more freedom in your heart and as you reflect you might in a sense what's going on my sense of storyline how come it's a bothersome thing what makes you angry or hurt or upset and then ask yourself what would happen what would you have to experience if you let go of the story of you're bad, you're wrong if you let go of the aversive story of blame what would be underneath that you'd have to experience that might be somewhat difficult to experience if you let go of your wrong that story What would you have to feel? You can keep on reflecting on that, but if you'd like to open your eyes, and what I'm going to ask is just to, if a few people would be willing to share, just to, and speak loudly, and I'll repeat if I can, if I, as long as I can hear you. Just raise your hand, anybody. What did you notice? What's underneath it? Yeah, just a few words. Ah, so we let go of blame outward, and then it goes inward. Thank you. That's, there's no right or wrong answer, but that's a real one that I see. Yeah. Disappointment. I let go of the story of your wrong and then I'm living with disappointment. Yeah. You didn't love me. The hurt and feeling of you didn't love me. Yeah. Not belonging. Okay. Yeah. Compassion. Compassion. Now, what would stop you from letting go of the story of blame if you go to compassion? Have you already dropped it now that you just did that reflection? Great. Sometimes just asking the question and it kind of drops away. But often there's some layers between that we have to first feel, which is what I'm wondering about. What else did you notice? Anyone? 
story under the story of blame. Yeah. A feeling of responsibility. Responsibility. Then we become for your part. That's right. Yeah. I see a hand back. I'm not good enough. Um, so we again, it goes inward. Anyone else? What do you notice if you drop the story of your wrong? Anyone else? Vulnerability. Vulnerability. How many of you notice there was vulnerability if you dropped the story? Can I see? Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Bad luck. Bad luck. <laughs> yeah. Fear. Fear. Okay, so here's what I have found when I work with people on this releasing the heart of the bind of blame is that as when we first start putting down blame, like, okay, I'm going to see what's underneath it, there's a layer of stuff we don't want to feel. And it usually has to do with, oh, then maybe there's something wrong with me, responsibility, fear, vulnerability, sometimes helplessness. Yeah. Lack of identity. Perfect. That's one of the most profound levels that when we let go of blame, when we're no longer making someone wrong, our whole sense of who we are becomes unraveled. Because so much of our sense of self gets organized around me being against this person, this person. Okay? So the levels of blame can be sometimes really gross and sometimes really subtle. Now the gross level is, you know, you hurt me, you're bad, I'm going to then physically get back at you. Like I remember with my son when he was very, very young, if I was playing with him and I, and I, you know, in some way he felt hurt by me, he would have to punch me back twice as hard. No matter what, it had to be twice as hard, you know. And and then Rita Rudner writes this, she says, my grandmother was a, a very tough woman. She buried three husbands. Two of them were just napping. (laughs) So that's more than twice as hard, right? (laughs) So there's the gross level of blame, you're bad, lash out. And um, I can say that for myself, and I'm going to share a few of my stories tonight, I spent my early years in a rough neighborhood, East Orange, New Jersey, right near Newark, New Jersey, and at junior high school there were junior high gangs, and um, in those gangs a slight insult and it led to big fights. Of course, as you know, it's deadly now. So I wasn't part of one of the gangs, um, and I, it, was hard, it was hard for me to understand. I was kind of on the outside of that. And I had my boyfriend, his name was Tyrone. He was an African-American Chinese peacenik. And, you know, he was, so he, it was early days for peaceniks. And then I had a few friends, and I was outside of it. And I don't know what happened, but at some point, one of the girls in the neighborhood, Rosemary, decided that I had dissed her, Okay. And she confronted me outside, uh, around a block away from the apartment building I lived in. Uh, she brought a gang of other girls, and she confronted me for dissing her. And I said, didn't do it, didn't mean it, didn't do it. But she really wanted to fight, and she punched me in the cheek. And it was a hard. She punched me hard, and I was immediately enraged. Like I was immediately enraged. I hated her. I wanted to hurt her, and I immediately slammed her in the face, really, really hard. 
this isn't a turn the other cheek story as you're gathering, okay? Okay, so I slammed her in the face and then I realized the numbers were totally against me so I ran as fast as I could and I ducked into my apartment building. So this isn't a bravery story either, okay? So this is neither of those. It was a fight and flight story. Um, And I think of Rosemary and I think of what happened. Um, A lot of times when I hear about the violence in gangs. Like, it was so in me. It's like there was not a moment pause between feeling the outrage of somebody slamming me and slamming back. I mean, not a moment. I think of that a lot, and I'm going to be coming back to that. But it's sometimes blatant that, that in some way we feel offended, hurt, threatened, and we lash back. And then it's often subtle, the many ways we conclude that others should be different, that they should be different than they are. We do it, you know, that others should handle their lives differently, they should treat us differently, they should be acting differently. So now I fast forward in my own life to living in an ashram, a spiritual community, and the mother community was called ahimsa. You know, that means nonviolence. Okay, so here I am. And we do yoga and meditation every morning, get up at 3.30 and gather together. And my husband in the ashram, who's, uh, that was my first marriage, father of my son, continues as a dear and close friend. My husband in the ashram did not attend the morning meditations. And it kept becoming more and more of an issue for me. And I pleaded with him to come, and he would never come. He just didn't like doing yoga and meditation with groups. He didn't even like to do formal practice. You know, it's just not his thing. Well, to me, this was like the most major violation anybody could do. I mean, this was abuse. I mean, it was a big deal to me. It was like he was, he was violating the very terms of our relationship, which is we were in a spiritual relationship, and we were going to meditate together. And he wouldn't meditate with me. You know, I so I would do is I would go in the mornings and I'd be doing my yoga and meditation. But in my mind, the whole time I was thinking, he's not here. I can't believe he's not here. He is never going to spiritually evolve. This, you know. So I was just going through. <laughs> he was less. So I share that because I so many people I know. My partner should be different. Whether it's should clean up more, should should be raising our child differently. My child should behave different. My boss should be more appreciative. Anytime there's a should, our antennas might, it'd be good for them to go up. Because when there's a should, our heart is binded. When there's should, we're arguing with reality. We're saying reality's wrong. How it is, is wrong. It's a verse of judgment. Now, Now, in Buddhist teachings, it gets very, very subtle. And it's said that the final bind to freedom, the final fetter to freedom is comparing mind. That it is that deep in our conditioning to say this is different than that, I'm comparing this to that, I'm comparing me to you, in a flash. And I want to say that it's not necessarily a problem that comparing mind goes on. It's not a problem. We need to be able to distinguish between things. We need to be able to, as I mentioned earlier, make discriminating wisdom. This one guy writes, 
this is kind of some version of comparing mind. He says, my dad was the town drunk. Usually that's not so bad, but New York City, you know, <laughs> so you get the idea. It's like perspective. <laughs> so it gives us perspective. But I also want to say that we often think of anger as bad. It's in our culture as bad, but anger too is not an intrinsic problem. Anger can come up and it can be actually totally intelligent, give us the energy to act. This is Rachel Remen. She she describes some cancer studies that suggest that many people who recover become angry first. She says, and by the way, Rachel Remen is a wonderful, she's a physician, a healer, a wonderful writer. She says, anger is just a demand for change, a passionate wish for things to be different. It can be a way to reestablish important boundaries and assert personal integrity in the face of a body and life-altering disease. And as it was for me, it may be the first expression of the will to live. Anger, she writes, becomes a problem for people only when they become wedded to it as a way of life. So here we begin to sense where the judgment and anger becomes a bind to the heart. It's when we get identified with it. It's when our sense of who we are is shaped by the judgment. I'm the better one, you're the worse one. I'm angry, I'm going to hurt you. You did this, I'm going to get back. What happens is we get identified as a victim and as the judge. There's a wonderful line that says, who is it that's unhappy? He or she that finds fault. We get identified. Our life gets small. So then we begin to explore, okay, let's say for each of us, to some extent, because it's in our conditioning and our culture, we have gotten identified as a victim or as a judge, and we're in in the mode of, in some way, putting down another person in our life, carrying a resentment. Let's say for most of us, there's somewhere that our heart is small in that way. How do we begin to loosen that bind? How do we begin to step out of the habit of judging? Okay. And I'm going to describe the most basic elements are what we call the two wings of presence. The most basic elements to wake up out of judgment is the wing of recognizing our mindfulness. Okay, notice it's happening. Pause and notice it's happening. And then there's the wing of kindness. But I'd like to emphasize certain qualities of these wings. And the first quality I'm going to emphasize is when you are finding you're stuck in judgment, the first thing to do is pause and start exactly where you are by bringing attention to the place in you that's hurting. If there's judgment, underneath the blame, there's something going on. So the first step, start where you are and go right into where it's hurt inside your heart with a compassionate presence. That is the first piece. We don't begin by saying, I shouldn't judge. We don't begin by saying, oh, what that person's really a good person. They really meant well. We start with recognizing, okay, I wouldn't be judging unless something was going on right here. Does that make sense? Start here. 
So we're going to go back to my situation in the ashram with my first husband, with Alex, who wasn't called Alex then. He had an ashram name, which was Satsang, which is, means truth. So there I was, uh, you know, morning after morning, I'd go to the sadhana, the spiritual practice, and, and stew. And then one morning I was in cobra pose, some of you know cobra pose, and there I was, you know, in my mind, my mantra was, something's wrong with him, something's wrong with him, you know. <laughs> and, and then the absurdity hit. Okay, I, I got to pause because it became a totally absurd thing that I was sitting there doing a yoga posture and mentally going, he's crazy, he's, you know, wrong, he's bad. So, I, so during the meditation, I started paying attention. And this is the start where you are peace, where I just felt my heart. And it was tight and it was hot. Okay, that's what I felt inside. And so I said, okay, so what's the worst part of this? You know, okay, so what? He's, what would happen if I didn't, if I stopped blaming him? Well, what I found out was if I stop blaming him, he'll stay the way he is, which means he'll, he doesn't care about me. I'll just have to accept he doesn't care about me and accept we'll never be close. Okay, if I stop blaming, if I don't try to control, because I was trying to control him with my blame, I'll have to accept that he doesn't care because if he cared, he'd come and do this with me. That was my, I'm not saying that's true. It's called a complex equivalent. Care means you'll treat me this way. We do it all the time, these complex equivalents. My complex equivalents, if he cared about me, he'd be doing yoga and meditation with me. And then the other complex equivalents was, if he doesn't do this with me, we'll never have a way to have, be close. Okay, those are my... So I stayed with that, that feeling of the pain of that, because there was pain in that, pain that he doesn't care, pain that we won't be close. And that's when I just offered compassion to myself. I just breathed with it. And in those days, I, didn't, I wasn't in the Buddhist practice. I didn't know about putting my hand on my heart and sending certain messages. But I breathed with it. I breathed with it and I felt a sense of kindness towards myself. And that was the beginning of a real shift with Alex, where something in me just, you know, I took care of myself and something in me just said, he's the way he is. And it was the biggest freedom I ever gave to him and me, for me to say, he's the way he is, because then I started noticing he was about the most generous, serviceful person I'd ever encountered. I was busy doing a lot of yoga and meditation, but I was not as generous as he was. Very interesting. Pema Chodron, she says, when you begin to touch your heart or let your heart be touched, you begin to discover that it's bottomless, that it doesn't have any resolution, that this heart is huge, vast, and limitless. You begin to discover how much warmth and gentleness is there, as well as how much space. The beginning of letting our heart be touched, when there's judgment, is to just touch your own hearts, to feel a sense of, okay, there's some vulnerability or hurt in here, or threat. If you're a high school kid and you're doing the bullying, you're being aggressive, it's because you don't feel secure. You wouldn't be judging if you were feeling happy and secure. Does that resonate for you? We don't blame, we don't aggress if we're at peace with ourselves, okay? So have some compassion to the unhappy or insecure place. It's the beginning of being able 
to relate to others without judgment. Now one of the biggest challenges when we want to let go of blame is when somebody disagrees with us. I know it sounds like it's not a big violation, but it can feel like death because we're very, very attached to our views. People kill because other people don't have the same idea of God, right? It's happened through history. People have a vicious sense towards each other when they don't hold the same view about how change works or if you you don't see my motives the way I see my motives. I'm not seen. It's incredibly painful. The Buddha said that people with strong opinions go around bothering one another. I think that's a great one. And some of you, if you've been here before, you know how it ha- I've shared this before with you in, in, within religions, how much just, you know, you can be in the same religion but a little bit of a different school. In this one, a Taoist master sitting naked in his mountain cabin meditating and a group of Confucianists enter the door of his hut having hiked up the mountain intending to lecture him on the rules of proper conduct. When they saw the sage sitting naked before them, they were shocked and asked, what are you doing sitting in your hut without any pants on? And the sage replied, this entire universe is my hut. This little hut is my pants. (laughs) What are you fellows doing inside my pants? (laughs) So we know with differences and um, what happens. Uh, how much the heart gets tight and how much somebody becomes an unreal other and it's hard to sense the humanness. And one, one friend in the community here shared her conflict and pain. Uh, this is a woman uh, who's gay and is very left-leaning in our community whose brother is a fundamentalist Christian minister. Okay, so this is the setup. And they got into an email conflict over views that differed. And then there were months and months and months of no communication whatsoever. And uh, then she saw something on his Facebook. He was weighing in on Keith Oberman. You can imagine which direction he weighed in on. And so she weighed in. And um, then was watching a movie soon after on TV that had a story about a very estranged family and a lot of pain and was struck in the middle of the story with her own pain that she was not living with her heart in the way she was relating to her brother, relating to what was happening. And um, she said, and I'm just going to read because she wrote it out a little, I asked her to write out some of this She says, it was clear to me how out of line I was with my own heart and the way I want to be with my brother, how I want to be with anyone. So what she did was she called him and left a message. He didn't pick up, but they spoke soon after. And basically she communicated how her heart was hurting so much, being estranged for the person that meant so much to me. And she shared her vulnerability. And she she describes in this that when she was sharing her vulnerability, she was saying, you know, I should never have done that on Facebook because it was coming from a hostile place. She admitted it. But she wasn't down on herself. 
and I think this is an important piece, that it wasn't like bad me, it was like, I just want to love well, and I don't want to be misaligned with my heart. It wasn't a bad me thing. So she shared her vulnerability, and that allowed him to share from a place that he had never shared from, and the coming back together was at a level that they hadn't communicated from. How did this happen? I want to come back to these basic keys to, you know, what allows us to release this bind of the heart. We start where we are. We start and get in touch with, okay, vulnerable, hurt. It hurts. There's a kindness towards ourselves. There's not like we're blaming ourselves for the judging. If you blame yourself for judging, all you've done is added another bind to your heart. Okay, so we start where we are with compassion. But then there's the next piece, which is we realize what matters to us. This is this next piece. If you want to wake up out of judging, and judging is the biggest trance we go into. It's the biggest one. Remember what matters. So for this woman, she, my heart doesn't want to be this way with my brother. It's the choice. I don't want, I'd rather, rather than being right, I'd rather to love. Choosing love. This is the next piece. First we start where we are and be with what's here, and then we remember what matters. We choose love. Do I want to be right or to be loving? Thus far I'm giving you examples of how to begin to loosen the binds of judgment when we felt hurt by others or in conflict. But I haven't really included the very deepest kind of violations if somebody's raped you or attacked you or are in some or killed somebody you love. And there's a regular question I get, which is, you know, how do we start softening and opening the heart and you know, when somebody has created those kind of violations. And um, I first want to say that this awakening, compassionate heart doesn't mean being a doormat. It doesn't mean when somebody condone violence, bad behavior. It's not what some call idiot compassion you know, idiot compassion, where we just, it's like, throw down all the boundaries and love everybody, and it's, it's got an intelligence. It's not passivity. In fact, when we're inactive, we're acting, okay? So, this forgiving heart is not inactive. It's important to set boundaries. So, let's say you've been abused, okay? Do everything we can to leave the abusive situation. We do everything we can to have self-compassion. In fact, when you've been abused, don't try to forgive too quickly. It becomes a spiritual bypass. You know, it's like a spiritual transcendence. You're trying to get something over with too quickly. It's a slow process. And if you've been abused, to have the intention to let go of the anger and hatred is the intention to free your own heart because it's your heart that doesn't get released if you carry the blame. Do you sense that, that the, the wisdom of that? 
that we do all the boundaries we need, we take all the action that's appropriate to move towards uh, justice and less harm for ourselves and others, but to have the intention not to live with judgment, hatred, and blame. If a dictator is violating people's rights, if our country or another country is violating rights, we take action. I have such a strong uh, process that goes on inside me to share with you that let's, and I remember it very, very, uh, it was very clear as we led up to the war in Iraq where I'd be reading the newspaper and having this building sense of like it was going to happen any time now and the feeling of anger and hatred towards the administration in me, you know, for moving us inexorably towards war. And I'd sit and read the paper and I would pause, put the paper down, say, okay, what's going on inside me? Anger, anger, hatred. It was very riveted on certain individuals. I mean, I was, I was really, really upset. And this is not a historical thing. I continue in certain situations to, to sense what's going on in the world and have a real lot of anger towards those that appear to be the ones driving the action. Okay? So anger, anger, and then I pause. Okay, so what if I had to let go of the story of blame? Fear, fear, it's all out of control. Fear, fear. And then what's under that? Grief, grief. You know, that this cycles of war, you know. We think that we're going to go and depose of this person and the very ways that we do it and the violence towards civilians just creates more anger and just puts in another kind of angry... You know, it's just cycles of violence. So grief, grief, and underneath the grief, caring, caring. Do you understand what happens when we stay with what's there rather than, than, than plunge forward in the story of blame? We come down to grieving. There's a, there's a beautiful line that I read that, that vengeance is a lazy form of grief. Okay, so the, the teachings really for this sure heart's release start with pausing. They go to saying, okay, so what's going on inside me? You know, can I bring compassion here? And then they go to what really matters? As this woman in our Sangha found, it matters to live aligned with my heart. I want to love. I'd rather love than prove I'm right. In the most basic way, this commitment to freeing our hearts is a commitment to trusting in the power of our hearts and awareness. We're trusting in it. We're trusting in goodness, our own and others. We're taking a chance to let that be our stand, that I'd rather stand for that. So I started tonight, and I'm going to be closing soon, started tonight with my own story about these junior high school gangs. I'd like to end with a different story, which is um, one where a man who uh, spent many years working in a rehab program for juvenile offenders here in D.C. described this where uh, most of his, the youth were gang members, committed homicide. One 14-year-old boy in his program had shot and killed an innocent teenager to prove himself to his gang. 
At the trial, the victim's mother sat impassively silent until the end when the youth was convicted of the killing. After the verdict was announced, she stood up slowly and stared directly at him and said, I am going to kill you. Then the youth was taken away to serve several years in a juvenile facility. After the first half year, the mother of the slain child went to visit his killer. He had been living on the streets before the killing and she was the only visitor he'd had. For a time they talked and when she left, she gave him some money for cigarettes. Then she started step by step to visit him more regularly, bringing food and small gifts. Near the end of the three year sentence, she asked him what he'd be doing when he got out and he was confused and very uncertain, so she offered to set him up with a job at a friend's company. Then she inquired about where he would live, and since he had no family to return to, she offered him temporary use of the spare room in her home. For eight months he lived there. He ate her food and worked at the job. Then one evening she called him into the living room to talk, and she sat down opposite him and waited. Then she started. Do you remember in the courtroom when I said that I was going to kill you? I sure do, he replied. Well, I did, she went on. I did not want the boy who could kill my son for no reason to remain alive on this earth. I wanted him to die. That's why I started to visit you and bring you things. That's why I got you the job and let you live here in my house. That's how I set about changing you. And that old boy, he's gone. So now I want to ask you, since my son's gone and that killer's gone, if you'll stay here. I've got room and I'd like to adopt you if you'll let me. And she became the mother of her son's killer, the mother he had never had. So this is a story of embodying the sure heart's release, the freedom of the heart, of not giving up on anyone. In other words, we learn not to give up on our own heart and we learn not to give up on, on the potential in others. And I don't share the stories to say, oh, if this kind of thing happened to my son that I could be forgiving in that way. It's not to say that, or that we should be. It's more to say that this is the possibility of, of living for what, really just living our loving, letting our life stand for love. And that's the kind of choice that we can make of remembering what really matters when we're caught in judgment. Does it matter to really be right? Doesn't it matter more in this world if just in our own lives, if we care about peace on earth, that we in our own lives at least have the intention to wake up out of the story of blame? Doesn't that matter more? I mean, if each of us left and had some place that we knew we were living in kind of some resentment or blame and and just had a sense, well, it matters to me to loosen this some. I don't want to live with this bind. I want to live more from my heart. If each of us did that, the power of that in this universe is hard to even describe. That's the kind of thing that makes a difference. There is a teaching 
in the Shambhala tradition, Tibetan Buddhism, from Chogyam Trungpa. He describes it the vision of the great eastern sun. He says that in this vision, no human being is ever a lost cause. We are always willing to give things a chance to flower, including ourselves. So this is really the practice. If we want to free ourselves from the judgments is to pause, to bring that, that kindness to our own wounds, but not to give up. You know, whether if we're judging ourselves, not to give up on our own goodness, not to give up on the light, the love that lives through other beings, not to give up, to let your life stand for love, choosing love. So we'll do a closing meditation on this theme. If you'd like to take this pause and let yourself arrive a little more fully, feeling your breath, just inviting yourself right here. The more you're here, the more you're feeling your body, your heart, the more power to the reflection. You might begin by feeling your sincerity, your intention for the sure heart's release, to free this heart of whatever might separate. Free this heart to really love fully without holding back. And from that place of sincerity to again choose wherever in your life you might sense you're holding resentment or blame, maybe the place you chose earlier. And for some, it, for many, it'll be a person perhaps that you work with or a family member or somebody you know. But it could also be someone you don't know if you feel a lot of hatred towards a political figure or somebody that's well-known in some way, that too is, is a place to practice. So we begin bringing these wings of presence to what's right here in our hearts. So you might sense, you know, what's really charging or energizing the hatred or anger or judgment or resentment you feel. You know, what's happened? What's the worst thing about this? Is there a feeling of being unloved or uncared about? Not seen? Threatened that somebody's going to take something away from you? Threatened that somebody's going to injure or take something away from people you care about? they already have. So as you begin to inquire and sense what's underneath, just to hold with kindness your own feelings of insecurity or hurt or upset. Just to hold whatever's in this human heart with kindness. 
Again, just sensing your intention to not give up on your own capacity to love in an open-hearted way, not give up on another. And that doesn't mean you think the other can change, but rather that you just want to be able to hold the vision of the possibility and to remember another's goodness, even if it's covered over, even if it's masked in many ways. You're serving the world by remembering with compassion and care another's decency, another's heart. So you begin by opening the attention to bring the other into your awareness and sense the vulnerability there. Just to imagine, sense how that person is insecure. How whatever you're judging comes from insecurity. And that under that insecurity, this person too wants to love, wants to be happy. Just to feel your breath right now and sense that in you which is simply aware of this whole process. Holding with kindness your own heart. Holding with kindness this other being. Again the words of Pema Chodron. When you begin to touch your heart or let your heart be touched, you begin to discover that it's bottomless, that it doesn't have any resolution, that this heart is huge, vast, and limitless. You begin to discover how much warmth and gentleness is there, as well as how much space. May the binds that keep our hearts small and separate be freed, be dissolved and released. May these hearts open to the fullness of loving presence. May all beings be free of the binds that keep them small. May all beings realize loving presence as their deepest nature. Namaste. The talk you just listened to has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule or about programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit either my website, which is tarabrock.com, or IMCW's site, which is imcw.org. Thank you very much.